We've been looking at some stories from the Old Testament uh, that maybe you heard in Sunday school or maybe you heard when you were a kid, but maybe you haven't thought about them for a long time, you know, or, or, or maybe you're not quite sure how they apply to your life. And we're going to look at another one of those uh, today as we look at the story of Esther. Now, my name's Steve Wallen, and I'm the campus pastor for our Carmel campus, and uh, I'm getting a break from Carmel today to come back and spend some time with you in Noblesville. It's been a great uh, morning already for me today, and I'm looking forward to a great afternoon, just getting to see some, some friendly faces and some people that I haven't seen in a few weeks. Paul Mumal, who's our lead pastor, is over at Carmel today, and so he's probably already taking a nap by now because he's done for the day, and so uh, that's good for him. Uh, one of the things that's been a real uh, important part of my life the last week or so is the Olympics. I wonder how many of you have been watching the Olympics. Have you seen any of the sports? And yeah, good. I have too. And it's something I look forward to every four years because some of my favorite sports are Olympic sports and they don't show them during the year, uh, usually unless it's an Olympic year. And so I've been, I've been enjoying that. I think it's amazing though, how it seems like every year, the city who hosts the Olympics is trying to one up the city from four years ago. Have you noticed that even with London and Beijing had a great party four years ago and London has kind of gone over the top to try to one up them. And I was looking this week at some of the like the facts surrounding the Olympics in London and, and I found some of these and I thought they were interesting. I'll let you be the judge of whether you think they're interesting or not. But in any case, they are facts about the Olympics. And so uh, the opening ceremonies, anybody watch the opening ceremonies? Uh, a few people, that's probably about everybody uh, that watched it totally. Uh, there weren't very many people, but the, the opening ceremonies this year took 7,500 volunteers. Almost everybody involved with the ceremonies was a volunteer, 7,500 volunteers, and they practiced at two secret locations in the city of London so that they wouldn't, they didn't practice in the, in the arena, they practiced at secret locations, and it took 284 practice sessions to get everything right. Uh, for the opening ceremony. So if you can imagine 7,500 people over 284 practice sessions and they all had to keep it secret, pretty amazing, you know. There were 89 animals that took place or that took part in the opening ceremonies uh, and their handlers. The animals included goats, sheep, dogs, geese, chickens, ducks, and horses. Now I watched the opening ceremonies. I didn't see that many animals, but I'm, I trust that they were there. Uh, and one of the things that London has done to try to differentiate itself is it has tried to advertise how green uh, these Olympics are and how they're trying to reduce the carbon footprint of the Olympics. And so one of the things that uh, this fact sheet I saw said that they used uh, recycled products in the costumes for the opening ceremonies and that there were 40,000 recycled plastic bottles and 10,000 recycled plastic bags used to make the costumes that were in the opening ceremonies. Now, you get beyond the opening ceremonies and get to where the real meat of the, of the games is, and that's the sporting events. Now, this year, there are 204 nations represented at the games, including 10,000 athletes, 10,000 athletes that take part in 302 events. So there are 302 medals available to be won at the Olympics this year. Now, you, we all know about, you know, the swimming and gymnastics and track and field and the, the better, well, the more well-known events, but did you know that there are some lesser-known sports in the Olympics. And there are some that have been tried at various Olympics before. So like, for instance, the last time or the first time the Olympics were in London, uh, one of the uh, demonstration sports was tug of war. Did you know that was an Olympic sport at one time? It was a demonstration sport in London. Um, This year, a sport like team handball. Anybody watching the team handball finals? You know who the medal contenders are for team handball? Uh, Men's trampoline. Did anybody know men's trampoline was Olympic sport? Anybody know that men actually jump on trampolines from time to time? I didn't even realize that. Uh, And then my favorite is the modern pentathlon. 
Now, modern pentathlon has five different sports, pent, pent from the Greek penta for five, right? And, and it includes running, swimming, horse jumping, fencing, and pistol shooting, all right? doesn't really sound modern to me, but okay, I'll, I'll, tell you, I'll give you that. But, but I'm always amazed at how maybe some of these, uh, c- these events became competitions. I mean, can you think about when they're coming up with modern pentathlon? Well, we need somebody who can run to their horse and then jump the horse over a bunch of stuff and then stab somebody with a sword and then shoot them to make sure they're really dead and then swim away. I mean, that's the five events in modern pentathlon. I don't know how it came about. I'm sure there's some great historical reason why that's an Olympic sport, but I'm not sure what it is. But, but anyway, no matter how you look at it, there's no doubt the Olympics is a big party, isn't it? I mean, London has known for eight years that it was going to have the Olympics in 2012. And so they've spent a lot of time and effort preparing for this real party. But the amazing thing to me is, is like all this hubbub that went into the opening ceremonies, all this preparation, all these buildings that were built. And in 17 days, the whole thing's over. Like the party's over. It's done. Everybody leaves London and goes on and goes to the next place. You know, 17 days after it starts, the Olympics will end. But if you want to see a real party, I mean a truly epic party, you don't need to look any further than in the Bible and specifically in the first chapter of Esther. And that's where we're going to spend some time today. As we continue in our amazing story series, we're going to look at the story of Esther. The story of Esther, conveniently enough, is contained in the book of Esther. And so you can, if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. The book of Esther is about halfway through your New Testament. Uh, you'll find it there with, uh, along, alongside uh, some of the other great stories of the Bible. But you can go there. Now, Esther was a young woman. She was an Israelite, which means she was uh, part of what they'd call at the time the people of God. And like many of these stories, sadly, this one starts with the people of God in exile in another land. And in this case, they're living in Persia. Now, Persia was in modern-day Iran. Okay, and and so the Israelites are from Israel. So this is hundreds or maybe even a thousand miles from their homeland. And that's where Esther and her family and her people are living. Now, they're living under the rule of the Persians and the Persians are an interesting people. Uh, The Persians have one characteristic that kind of sets them apart from a lot of the other civilizations at the time. And it's this. The Persians loved a good party. They loved a good party. And I know that when you think Iran, you think party, right? I mean, when you, that's kind of how we are in this world. We now, if you think that's not how we are, but Persians loved to party and they loved to party for one very good reason. And that's that their king loved to party. Now their king, the Persians king, his name was King Ahasuerus. Uh, that's his Hebrew name. Your Bible may say Xerxes. He's the same guy. But Ahasuerus knew how to party. And he was the party thrower of the year in in, uh, Persia. And and at the beginning of the book of Esther, Esther chapter 1, we catch him in the middle of this giant party. And this wasn't just uh, some open house that he threw. I mean, this isn't a finger food event. And it's not even an Olympic-sized party. That's only 17 days. I mean, this party that Ahasuerus threw or that Xerxes threw lasted, believe it or not, 180 days. Six months. This party lasted six months. I mean, good luck finding a babysitter in Persia if you're going to go to this party, okay? But, but can you imagine getting an invitation to a party like this? First of all, it's at the palace, okay? And who's going to be there? Well, the king and queen are going to be there and then all of the nobles and, and the, the governors of the land. And you've you got to bring a gift, okay? I mean, you can't just stop at CVS and pick up a greeting card on the way on the 99-cent rack. That's not going to do it. And this is going to be substantial. It's a, it's a big event. It's a big party. 
Now, the people that were invited to this party were no slouches themselves. They were the nobles, as I said, the, the governors of the provinces of Persia. They were, they were wealthy people and influential people in, on their own. And, and why would the king invite a bunch of influential and wealthy people over to his palace for a six-month-long party? Well, to impress them, right? He wanted to impress the other big shots. And so uh, there were a lot of big shots sitting around with a bigger big shot, the king. Now, the king had a wife. Uh, her name was Vashti, Queen Vashti. Now, uh, this party was a little bit like a middle school dance in that they put the boys on one end and the girls on the other, okay? Just like in middle school. And, and so uh, the king, King Xerxes, took all the men and took them into one part of the palace. And then Queen Vashti took all the women and had them in another part of the palace. And, and the Bible tells us that the last seven days, now we've been going on six months, okay? The last seven days of this party, the festivities really start to ramp up. And, and the Bible tells us that the last seven days of this party were a feast of food and drink. Now, that last word is kind of the key word, okay? Food and drink. There was a lot of drinking going on. And so, so King Xerxes is basically sitting around with his buddies and getting plastered. And that's what's happened in the last seven days of this party. And, and so as they, as they start to feel pretty good on wine, uh, they start to talk about girls, women, and the king brings up his queen, Queen Vashti, and he wants to brag. He wants to, to show off to his nobles. And so the king summons Queen Vashti to come to a party. And that's where we're going to pick up, pick up, okay? And I know it's a weird place to start, but trust me, we'll get to where we need to go, all right? But we're going to start in Esther chapter 1, verse 10. So if you have your Bibles, you can open them there or open up your Bible app on your phone. And it says this, On the seventh day, when King Xerxes was in high spirits from wine, see, I told you, okay, high spirits, uh, he commanded the seven eunuchs who served him, Mehuman, Bistha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abagtha, Zethar, and Carcass. That's the seven guys that served him. He commanded them to bring before him Queen Vashti, wearing her royal crown, in order to display her beauty for the people and nobles, for she was lovely to look at. Now, when the king wants her to display her beauty, he's most likely not talking about an evening gown competition, okay? I mean, Queen Vashti was asked to come wearing probably nothing but her crown, okay? And when he says, when it says that he wants her to display her beauty, he's probably talking about some sort of dance, and I don't mean the Persian polka. I mean, this is probably a dance that's a little more provocative than that, okay? And so the king is asking Queen Vashti to come in all her naked splendor and show off for his drunk friends. Okay, you get the picture? I think you do. Okay, now, the queen is not just a piece of meat, though. And so she defers. She's not going to come and show off. And, and so she refuses. And, and the king, King Xerxes, who's clearly not used to being told no, is furious. And he comes undone. And so he gathers his wise men. Now, remember, they're not in exactly the best mental state. Okay, but he gathers his wise men and he asks them, what shall we do with this act of defiance? Now watch what happens in Esther 1.19. One of his wise men suggests, therefore, if it pleases the king, let him issue a royal decree and let it be written in the laws of Persia and Medea, which cannot be repealed, that Vashti is never again to enter the presence of King Xerxes. Also let the king give her royal position to someone else who is better than she. So... They suggest he simply replace the queen. And that's what he does. He replaces the queen. He, he, he sends her away. You know, now, now you're just some queen that I used to know. Okay, so she's gone and, and nobody is put in her place. And so Queen Vashti is out. 
she's removed. And, and, you know, as a teacher, it's kind of a tragedy to teach the book of Esther because there are so many places uh, that you could, so many things that you could talk about. There's so many things that you could focus on. And to try to pick just one or two to focus on is really difficult. And so what I want to do is just encourage you this week to take the time and read the entire book of Esther. Now, I know that sounds a little overwhelming, but the book of Esther is only 10 chapters. I've read it four or five times this week in preparation, and it takes me about 20 minutes every time I do it. And, and so I encourage you to read it. And if you do that, you'll be blessed. You'll see a lot of things uh, that you'll find about God's character, and they'll be really cool. But one thing that you'll really notice is what's missing. And what's missing in the book of Esther is it never mentions the name of God. Like the whole book of Esther, it's the only book in the Bible that never mentions God. 66 books, the only one that never mentions God is Esther. But what we see, well, hang on to that. I'll, I'll come back to that, okay? So Esther doesn't mention the word God in the Bible or in, that, in the whole book, so we'll come back to that. Queen Vashti is out. She's removed. You know, it doesn't take long until poor King Xerxes is moping around the kingdom. I mean, he's, he's lonely. He misses his queen. Uh, he's, he's not sure what to do. You know, there's nobody to wash the dishes or whatever. You know, there's nobody to, to, to play cards with, you know, whatever kings and queens do together. And so his, his nobles and his royals come up with an idea, and that is they will throw the king a party, a party. Let's throw the king a party, except this time, instead of a, a big royal party where we invite all the nobles, what we're going to do is we're going to invite all the virgins from throughout Persia. And so they decide to make this kind of like, it's kind of like a beauty pageant, okay? It's like a Miss Persia pageant. We're going to invite all the virgins to come into the palace. And then at the end, they all get to spend time with the king. At the end, the king gets to pick one to be the new queen. I mean, if you're the king, what a great idea, right? All the girls that show up, we're going to pick one who's going to get to be the queen. Well, enter Esther, okay? Esther was an Israelite, as we've already established. But Esther was also an orphan. You know, she didn't know her parents and... She was being raised by the son of her uncle, what scripture tells us, her her cousin, Mordecai. Now, Mordecai is is an Israelite. He's a Jew, but he works at the king's palace. And from best we can tell, he's a palace guard. And he hears about this little Miss Persia pageant, and he encourages Esther to go and and show up. Uh, But knowing the reputation of the Israelites in Persia, he says this. He says, don't let anyone know where you've come from. In other words, Esther, you need to go. You need to go be part of this. But don't let anybody know you're from the nation of Israel, okay? Don't let anybody know about your family. Well, Esther thinks this whole thing is just a waste of time. After all, she's from a foreign land. I mean, she's a foreigner. She's from, you know, hundreds or thousand miles away. She's an orphan. And so she's, she's powerless. You know, she doesn't have a, a real lineage. She's not, she doesn't have royalty in her blood, Okay. And, and the Bible says, though, that she had a beautiful figure and she was lovely to look at. And so somehow Mordecai encourages her to go and participate and Esther goes. And not only does she go, but lo and behold, Esther wins. And, and Esther wins the whole thing. And so she wins this Miss Persia pageant. And she wins not only, you know, a scholarship to Persia State University, which you win when you win the Miss Persia pageant, but more importantly, Esther becomes queen of all Persia. And so here's this young girl, this, this orphan girl, Esther. And, and she's from a very humble background and she suddenly finds herself queen. And you know she's got to feel really good about this, this royal position that she's ascended to. But the happy feeling doesn't last very long. Because soon after Esther becomes queen, her cousin Mordecai hears about a plot to destroy all of the Israelites, to kill them all. 
And it's a plot that's hatched from within the king's court. In fact, this plot is started by a man named Haman, who the Bible tells us or kind of alludes to the fact that Haman is probably the king's most loyal servant. He's probably his right-hand man, Haman is. And, and he wants to commit genocide. He wants to kill off the entire nation of Israel, every Jew in all of Persia. And Esther finds herself all of a sudden in a major dilemma. What does she do? Now you hear this story and, and sitting here today in 2012 and you think, what dilemma? I mean, we're talking about genocide here and she's the queen. All she has to do is go tell the king and the king's not going to like it. And the king is going to do something about it. Well, I, I want you to think about this for a minute, okay? Because here, here's the truth. The truth is, first of all, in those days, a decree made by the king could not be repealed. Okay, because a king was looked at in those days as kind of a god. And so for a king to have a decree repealed would have meant that the king had originally made a mistake. And that would be like blasphemy. It'd be like saying that this god made a mistake. So even the king couldn't repeal his own decree. Once there was something out there and it was stamped by the king, it became the king's word. It became law and it couldn't be repealed. But so the, the, the ruling to exterminate the Jews was set in stone. But second, nobody was allowed to approach the king uninvited. I mean, even if you were the queen, it doesn't matter who you are. If the king didn't invite you and you came into the king's uh, throne room, if you came into his inner circle, into the king's court, you aren't getting in. Okay, I mean, and if you did try to approach him without an invitation, the king could choose to extend his royal scepter to you and accept you as a guest. But if not, I mean, it could be off with your head. I mean, it could be a really bad day for you if you decided uh, to go see the king without an invitation. And so that's the dilemma that Esther's faced with. And I just, I just want to let that sink in for a minute. You know, feel the weight of Esther's challenge, you know, what she's thrown into. Her, her people are in danger, and she knows that. She knows that her family's lives are at stake, yet she can't do anything to change the king's ruling. And, and even if she could, she may not be able to even get in to see him. I mean, it could be her life. And, and she's got the weight of this whole dilemma on her shoulders, and she can't even talk to her husband about it. And remember, the king has a reputation I mean, nobody really knows where the last queen went. But all of this, all of this working together, it's, it's leading up to Esther's moment. I mean, it's, it's leading up. It's going to be a defining moment in Esther's life, one way or the other. This is going to be a defining moment in Esther's life. Now, if you read chapter 4 of Esther, you see that Mordecai, her cousin, knows what's at stake. You know, he, he understands the gravity of the situation. He, he, he starts laying on the pressure. He says, Esther, you've got to do something. He says, you're the only one who can do something. And do you have people in your life like that? I mean, do you have people that, like Mordecai, will speak truth into your life, can, can, that you feel like can see God moving even before you see him moving? I mean, we all need people like that in our lives, people who will push us in a good way, people who will challenge us to do what they see God calling us to do before we ever see it, right? We, we all need people like a cousin Mordecai who's going to challenge us with truth in our life. Well, Mordecai does that to Esther. But her first response isn't exactly heroic. We see that in verse four, or chapter 4, verse 10. It says, Then she instructed him, one of the messengers, to say to Mordecai, All the king's officials and all the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that they be put to death 
unless the king extends the gold scepter to him and spares their life. She basically says, what do you want me to do? I, I can't do anything. I can't save everyone, but, but the undertone is, but if I don't do anything, if I don't act now, maybe I can save myself. But Mordecai, he's not going to take that from this punk cousin of his. I mean, he raised her and he didn't raise her to look out for herself. He raised her to look out for her family. And so uh, he sends word back again. And, and, and Mordecai's words to Esther have become some of the most quoted words in all of Scripture. And they're really the important verse for us today. And it's in Esther 4, 13 and 14. And you see this. It says, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. Verse 14. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. In other words, if you don't say anything, they're still going to be saved. But you and your father's family will perish. And then Mordecai says this, and this is our key verse for today. In who knows, but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. And that was it. And that was all it took for Esther. She hears that. Now what follows is a strange dance between this, this nervous young girl and this all-powerful king. And she takes way longer than you think she should to get the message out, but she does it. And she does it. And in the end, you know, she tells the king and, and, and she tells him about the plot. And the king is furious. You know, nobody plots against my queen. You know, and, and so Haman, the right-hand man, is killed and the nation of Israel is, is saved. Now, all throughout this amazing stories series, we've been asking this one question. So what? I mean, what does this mean for me, right? What, what, what does this story mean for me? And so God speaks to Moses from a burning bush. What does that mean for me? You know, or, or, or God, Noah builds this boat and, and saves a bunch of animals. Well, what does that mean for me in my life? You know, and, and it's, it's true that these are really good stories, but there's also a really good chance that God is not going to do anything like this in your life or in my life, right? I mean, in fact, God went to extraordinary measures to communicate with Abraham and, and Moses and Noah. That's true. But in our lives, our stories today, God is much more likely to communicate with us like he did with Esther through somebody like Mordecai, you know? And as you read this, I told you that the name of God is not mentioned once. But it's clear to us that God is speaking to Esther through Mordecai. You know, just as an aside, what, what if our lives looked like that? What if, what if our lives looked like the book of Esther? You know, that, that even when we weren't mentioning God, that people could still see that God was working in our lives. You know, that God was, was talking, speaking through us. Like, like, what if even though you were talking to a friend and you didn't mention God's name, you gave them some piece of wisdom that, that clearly they knew wasn't from you, but that, that's got to be from God. Or, or what if, like, the way you carried a burden in your life, that people would look at you, and even if you didn't tell them about God, they would look at you and they would say, man, I know that they're getting strength from somewhere that I don't really understand. I, I need to ask them about that. You know, or, or what if you had such humility that they said, I know that, that that person has to be following God. That has to be from somewhere else. You know, what if even when we didn't use God's name, we lived like we knew him? You know, well, that's how it is with Mordecai. You know, God's name's not mentioned in this story, but we know that God is communicating with Esther through Mordecai when he says, and who knows, but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. See, Mordecai doesn't see Esther being queen at the time of the threat as a coincidence, okay? Mordecai knows there's more to it, and he believes that God has placed Esther in her royal position for this exact moment, 
so that through her, God might help bring deliverance for the Jews, through, bring salvation to the Jewish people through Esther. And so Mordecai challenges her to make a move right now, like seize this divine moment that's been appointed to you. Now, what does that have to do with you and me? You know, my guess is that very few of us have to worry about deadly repercussions, you know, of our actions, you know, but, but the story of our lives and, and God's call for our lives as Christians is much more like the story of Esther than many of these other stories. You know, we have the benefit of hindsight as we look back on the story of Esther and we can say, oh yeah, I see God working in that. I see how that worked. I see how God told her to go there and to do that. And, and we see that God's working in Esther's life through that royal position that she ascended to. But in your life, can I, can I just encourage you for a minute? I mean, can I, can I be your cousin Mordecai today and say that who knows that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this? And now you hear that and you think, wait, wait a minute. What do you mean royal position? I'm not in a royal position. I, I'm a teacher, you know, or I'm a mom or, you know, I, I'm just a businessman or I work in a factory, you know. I don't have a royal position. Yeah, yeah, you do. You are royalty. You and I are royalty. You know, it's like Esther, we're royalty. And the truth is this. If you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then you hold a royal position. And the scripture tells us so. You're royalty. I mean, look at this verse from 1 Peter 2. 1 Peter 2, 9 says this, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. I mean, look at that. You are a chosen people. If you're part of the church, if you are a follower of Jesus, you are a chosen people. You are a royal priesthood. You have the ability to speak directly to God as a priest. You are royal. You have royalty. You have royal blood in your veins. You're a holy nation. Now, holy, that means set apart. You know, you are set apart from the world. So if you ever get in a situation where you end up at a party and you don't really fit in, you know, because you're a Christian and you don't believe some of the things these people do or you're in a conversation and you find yourself not fitting in, that's because you're holy. That's because you're set apart. You're not supposed to fit in with the rest of the world. So that's what that is. Revelation 1 says it this way. It says, To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a what? A kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father. To him be the glory and power forever and ever. Amen. You know, we are royalty. We are, we are kings. We are queens. We are priests. God has set us apart to do this work. And this isn't just figurative royalty. This is real royalty. I mean, you have royal blood. Flowing through your veins right now is royal blood. You know, if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord, Scripture says that you were made to reign. Okay? And, and Revelation tells us that we will reign in heaven someday. But it's not just royalty once you get to heaven. Okay, right now, in this world, you are representing the king on official business. I mean, if I were to cut you right now, you have royal blood flowing through your veins. You are a king in another land. Author Beth Moore says it like this. She says, you're no less royal than the queen of England would be if she visited the White House or the Bronx. She is the queen regardless of where she is and how she is treated. Her status is secure and so is yours. When she, she's cut, she bleeds royal blood. And so do you. You and I, we're royalty. We have royal blood in us. And as a, we are a chosen people. And as a chosen people, it means that you and I also, you have a sphere of influence. You know, I have a sphere of influence. And for most of us, most of you, I don't even have to tell you what that means. You already know. 
because most of us in this room have been thinking for a long time about doing something about something or telling someone something about Jesus or, or changing something in our lives. You know, God put it on your heart, maybe recently, but maybe a long, long time ago, there's one thing that you need to do and you still haven't done anything about it. You know, but by, by God's grace, you're still here. You know, you're still here. You're still living in that neighborhood or in that apartment or in that dorm room, you know. You're, you still work at that place. You still see that same person every week and you still have that same sphere of influence and it's not an accident. Like you were put there for such a time as this. You know, maybe you don't already have something in mind and, and maybe you need to think about it. I, I'm just going to encourage you to do that today. You know, even now, maybe it's time to, to take a minute and commit to that one thing that you felt God calling you to do for a long time. You know, we're going to do that here in a couple minutes, but, but, but maybe for you it's to invite that neighbor to church, you know, or that coworker to church. Now, I just want to encourage you that in two weeks on August 19th, we're starting a new series called Shattered. And it's going to be a perfect series for you to invite your friends who are far from God. I and mean, we're going to talk about things that we deal with every day in life. And if you've got friends that are far from God, um, I'm going to tell you, they would be pretty likely to accept an invitation to church. Um, and, and that would be a great weekend to invite them on August 19th. But maybe it's not that. Maybe it's something with your kids and, and committing to coach their team or, or to read to them from Scripture every day. I mean, for me, that's it. I mean, I, I need to get committed to discipling my kids. You know, uh, I'm their dad. I'm in that place for such a time as this. And I stood a couple of weeks ago in the very back of this room and I watched a dear friend give his daughter away in marriage. And I thought to myself, I don't have much time. And my kids are growing up so fast and, and I need to be the one. It's my job to help them find out about God. It, it's my job to teach them you know, that God loves them and that God has a plan for their lives. And before they go off to high school and college and they learn all kinds of other things, I need to be the one that builds into them and that disciples them and that, that influences them. Nobody else can do it. It's not Gen Kids' job to do that. It's not their teacher's job to do that or their, 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 their Sunday school teacher's job to do that. It's my job as the dad. I'm the only one that can do that. I mean, well, their mom can do it, you know, but, but, but dads, dads can teach kids things that moms can't. You know that, right? Or, or that dads can teach things, kids things that moms won't right? Like how to make funny noises with your armpits and things like that. But that doesn't have anything to do with discipleship. But, but I'm the dad. I'm like, I have put in that place for such a time as this. You know, when you walked in, you, you should have received a card and it may have a verse on it or it may be a blank index card. We kind of ran out, but, but you've got a card. If you've got that, will you hold it up for just a second? Hold that in your hand. You know, in, in just a couple minutes, we're going to give you a chance to, to commit to that one thing that you feel like God's been calling you to do. And it could be any one of those things, but you're going to write something on this card and then you're going to walk out those doors and here's what's going to happen. Life. You'll walk out those doors and life is going to happen. It does every week. And, and, and like Esther, you will start to face barriers to doing whatever is on that card. You know, no matter what you write on there, there are going to be barriers to what you want to do. In Esther's case, you know, if she went to the king, she could be killed. Pretty high barrier. You know, even if she got to him and, and she told him the story, he couldn't repeal his own order. Pretty high barrier. You know, your, your barriers and my barriers might look different, but what are they? I mean, what barriers might stand in your way today? And that's the question you have to ask yourself. What things might cause you not to seize this moment in the name of Jesus in your life? You know, maybe you're here and you would say a uh, barrier for you is that I'm not prepared. 
you know, I just, I just don't feel prepared. I, I, I'm, I'm new to this church thing. I'm new to God. I'm, I'm new to a relationship with Jesus. There's no way for God to do something special in me. Well, I can tell you that, that Esther didn't feel like she was prepared. You know, she'd only been queen for a little, little bit of time and she was not from this nation. She was an outsider and there's no way that she felt prepared to do what she needed to do. Maybe you'd say that I just don't have enough margin in my life. I can, whatever I write on this card, I just won't have time to do it. Well, if you're like most of us, time is valuable and it's precious. And, and there are only so many obligations. There are so many obligations and there's only 24 hours in a day. And if you're like me, you insist on sleeping at least eight of those hours. And so, you know, you're not a bad person. You're just really busy. Well, I, I got to tell you, I, I can imagine the life of a queen was pretty busy. You know, and maybe you say that it's out of my comfort zone. You know, there's a reason I haven't done whatever I write on this card because it's way out of my comfort zone. I'm not really comfortable doing that. And there's a good chance that if God's calling you to something, it's going to be out of your comfort zone. I mean, that's why God's got to call you to it. And it could mean that, that you're going to make somebody mad, that you're going to, they're going to look at you and see that there's a, you're a God kind of wacko, you know, that you're one of those Jesus freaks or whatever. Uh, maybe you don't want to seize God's divine moment in your life because you're afraid that somebody's not going to like you anymore. Well, I can tell you what Esther had to do was way out of her comfort zone. Or maybe your barrier is this. Maybe you just say, you know, someday, I know I need to do that and I'll do it someday. Well, I want to caution you as as much as I need to caution myself about this word. Don't don't underestimate the danger of the word someday. One author said, someday is the most dangerous word in the English language. I mean, think about it. Someday I'll, I'll go back to school and finish that degree. You know, someday I'll get a new job. Someday I'll, I'll take that vacation with my family. You know, someday I'll start working on my marriage. Or someday I'll start, you know, working on that relationship with my kids. You know, someday I'll start serving. Or someday I'll start giving. Or, or someday I'll, I'll, I'll commit my life to Jesus, but not today. Someday. You know, I think about someday. I think about the urgency of doing something today. You know, maybe you've seen around Noblesville the last uh, month or two, a lot of signs for a missing dog. I think his name is Bandit. Have you seen these signs around the city? And at first I saw them and they were just on like telephone poles and things like that where you normally put signs. And then I started seeing them like taped to sidewalks and in store windows and in car windows. And I think, man, this family is, is urgently, they're desperate to find this dog. They're, they're, they're household pet. They're looking desperately for this dog. And I don't know, I don't really understand the urgency behind trying to find this dog. But then I thought, well, you know, if it was my house and it was my dog, I, I'd, I know my wife and I, we'd probably be pretty urgently seeking too. And, and even more so if it was my daughter or, or my wife, you know, it was somebody, some person that was lost. How much urgency would there be behind seeking that? I know just over the last week, there have been two kids that have turned up missing, one in Noblesville and one in Westfield. And thankfully, thank God, they were both found yesterday. But, but I mean, can you imagine being a parent or being a spouse of somebody and, and, and somebody who is, who is kidnapped or lost or missing and, and not knowing their whereabouts and not knowing where they were? I mean, imagine the urgency behind that. Well, well God has that same kind of urgency for people who aren't in a relationship with him. And, and I don't know about you, but I can be so unaffected sometimes and so untouched by people who are close to me, but far from God. You know, I, I'm so used to it, especially with, you know, people who are in my family you know, people who are my friends or my neighbors, and I just think, well, he's so far gone. You know, what he believes is so far out there. I, God cannot reach them. You know, or, or I, I can't even get a word edgewise in with them. How am I supposed to talk to them about Jesus? But you know what? God reached me. He reached me through all of that. 
you sit, start to sit down to think about it and it crosses your mind and you think, well, I got to be having those conversations with those people. I need to be praying with them or I need to be, you know, watch the conversations and look for an opportunity to talk to them about Jesus. Well, maybe that'll be someday. Maybe someday I'll do that. Well, someday, the reality is someday may never come for some of us. You know, someday may be taken away from us. And Esther had a chance to put off God's call for her life and someday would have been a great way to do it. I mean, to say someday I'll go to the king and tell him about this plot, that would have been a great justification. But Esther instead embraced a greater word. And Esther's greater word wasn't someday. It was now. I mean, when seized with the moment, Esther asked, now, what do I do now? She realized that God called her to this time and place for a reason. And Mordecai helped her realize that. She realized that God was ready to save his people now. And I'd just like to encourage you, as I'm encouraged today, today is your divine moment. You know, today is your day. You know, if, if God's been calling you to do something, there will be other days and other opportunities to do other things. But God is calling you to do what he's called you to do today. God has set you apart for such a time as this. You are who you are and where you are for a reason. And as Paul and I were preparing this message together, this, this verse came to both of us in 2 Corinthians 6, uh, verse 1 and 2. And it says, as God's co-workers... We urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. For he says, in the time of my favor, I heard you. And in the day of salvation, I helped you. Well, I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. And I think about that verse, and I'm just so thankful that God didn't wait until I was ready to come and save me. You know, someday is a dangerous word in our lives when it comes to everything from relationships with each other and, and God's mission for us, then, God, then someday is definitely a dangerous word in light of our relationship with Jesus. I mean, he shed his blood to free us and to make it possible for you and me to be in a relationship with God. But far too many of us are living in the world of someday. And if that's the world you've been living in, I want you to know the, the word salvation in this verse from 2 Corinthians, that word salvation isn't just about heaven. It's about this world here, now, today. It's about our role in making things right in this world. It's about our role in helping reconcile God to the rest of the world. It's about our part in helping people find their way back to God. And, and you were set apart for such a time as this. Not, not someday, but today. You are his chosen people. Now, for you, this may mean, you know, reaching out to a neighbor who's all alone. Maybe it's, maybe it's your marriage. Maybe you both realize it's not working and neither one of you have been willing to do something about it, but, but you need to own up and start working on that. It could be that this idea for a ministry that God planted in you a long time ago or, or a relationship that he's placed in your way or, or maybe it's going back to school to finish that degree so you can go do something and have more influence or, or, or maybe it's a habit that you've just been stuck with and that, that you know you need to break. Whatever it is, in, in just a moment, we're going to give you an opportunity to take that card and write down uh, the one thing that you already know you need to do on that card. That today, there's one thing that God's calling you to do. And, and when I'm done here in just a minute, after I pray, the band's going to play, and, and we're going to give you a minute to write that down uh, on that card. But, but not just to write it down. And there's one other thing I want to ask you to do, and this may be the hardest thing you do in a long time. And that's I want you to write it down and then show it to one person. You know, one person that you trust, one person that you know can hold you accountable to do the one thing you already know you need to do to do it in your life. Would you do that? When we do that here in just a minute, can you, can you show it to one person that it will encourage you to follow through? You know, God loves you 
and believes in you and he's called you into a life that has far more significance than anything else in this world. But he doesn't depend on you. He doesn't need you to do his work. He doesn't need me to do his work. Uh, Just like Mordecai told Esther, you know, if you don't do this, salvation will arise from somewhere else. Well, if you don't do your part, God can make this happen on his own. But I tell you that God chooses to use us because he loves us and he wants us to have a role in his kingdom. He wants us to have a part in this and you will be blessed as you do it. You know, we talked a few weeks ago about how God wants to bless us so we can be a blessing to others and he doesn't want to do that someday. He wants to do it now. Now, there's just one more thing I want to bring up and it's this, that, that some of you are here today and you've never, there's one thing that you can do to make the rest of this make sense. You know, if you're here and, and the most important and rewarding decision you can ever make is to make Jesus Christ the Lord of your life. And if you're here today and you've never done that, what are you waiting for, man? I mean, today's your day. I mean, maybe you're, maybe you're here and you're just checking out God. Maybe you, you think, well, I just got to get this one question answered or I just got a few things I got to find out or there's, there's one more book I need to read before I make that decision. Well, I, let me tell you that, that I was just like that. I mean, when, when, when I started investigating God, I had all kinds of questions. And you know what God did? He, he didn't answer those questions to save me. He saved me while I still had those questions. And so like I'd say something like, well, God, how is it possible that God created the earth in seven days? And you know what God said? He said, he said, you don't need to know that. Here's what you need. You need me. You need my presence in your life. You need my son to be the Lord of your life. And maybe you're here today and you're just waiting for that one answer. Well, I'm just telling you that today's your day. Like today's your day. Would you pray with me? Wherever you are today, whatever you're feeling, whatever this... This, uh, this morning or this afternoon has, has put in you, uh, you are feeling that for a reason. You are who you are and where you are for a reason. And God, I just lift up every person in this room right now. Uh, the people that maybe know exactly what it is you've called them to do, God, and are convicted to do just that today as they leave this room. Or, or people that are still struggling and wondering, you know, what is that one thing? What is that next step I can take, God? Would you just give them wisdom and, and discernment to know where to go next? In fact, I just want to pray for you in this room. If you're here now, we just all keep our eyes closed and our heads bowed in an attitude of prayer. But if you're here and you would like me to pray with you that, that you've got something on your heart that you already know you need to do and you'd like special prayer to help with that, would you just raise your hand right now? If you already know what you're going to write on that card, would you just raise your hand and thank you for those hands? Thank you for that. Thank you for that. God, I just lift these people up to you. I, I thank you for their courage, for their boldness, for their desire to do what you've called them to do. And Would you just give them strength this week? Would you encourage them and help them uh, to find the strength that they need to do that one thing, God, that's going to be on that card, the the one thing that you've called them to do? And as I look around the room, I know that there are those of you here who have never accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. I'd love to pray that with you today. I'd love to to allow you to to accept Jesus into your life today. If you're here in this room and you've never prayed that prayer, and you sense it today. You just know that I need Jesus in my life. I can't, I can't do this on my own anymore. I'm tired of trying to fight these battles alone. And I need somebody to walk alongside me. If that's you, with every eye closed, would you just raise your hand right now? I'd love to pray with you. I'd love to pray that God would send his Holy Spirit on you. You can just pray this prayer with me. God, I need you in my life right now. Would you send Jesus Christ to be the Lord of my life? Would you send your, your Holy Spirit into my heart to guide me and direct me, God? Lord, I just thank you for this time. In the next few minutes, uh, we just offer all of these commitments up to you, these things that we know we need to do. We thank you for putting them on our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. You just take the next couple minutes and, and write on that card the thing that you feel God calling you to do.